You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Welcome to the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're going to be talking about financial advice and the people who provide it, financial advisors, or as they're sometimes known, wealth managers. Now, wealth management is a very big business, but it's also a business facing a number of challenges, such as new technology, changing demographics, and tighter regulation in a lot of countries. A little later, we're going to be getting a perspective on China, but we're going to start here in North America. And for this first part of the conversation, I'm joined on the line by Jill Zucker, who's a McKinsey partner based in New York, and Patrick Kennedy, who's based in Toronto. Pat is Chief Customer Officer for Price Metrics, which provides data and analytics to the wealth management industry. So Jill and Pat, thanks very much for joining today. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Let's start by talking about technology. There's a lot of discussion in the industry around the rise of robo-advisors, which is a phrase I absolutely love, by the way. So, Pat, maybe we can start with you. What is a robo-advisor? What's going on? Robo-advisors sort of emerged a handful of years ago, uh, very well-funded firms effectively looking to introduce algorithms digital platforms that replace things like account opening. Uh, It can build asset allocations, understand the objectives, risk tolerance, et cetera, of the investor, uh, and effectively build using very low cost investments, that which historically an advisor might do. So put together a portfolio, very slick interfaces, very easy to use, a lot of emphasis on graphic interface. And they sort of emerged as the big threat to wealth management. Everything's going to move online. This will become sort of the driverless car of the industry, and there'll be no need for people anymore. And, um, you know, interesting how that's now a few years later, the dust is settling a little bit, and we're, we're really starting to get our hands on what the real implications might be of this new technology. Simon, it's not the first time that we've seen technology disrupt the wealth management industry. If we think back several decades to the rise of electronic trading, discount brokers emerged from that, and they were called discount brokers at the time. And what they really did was democratize access to information. You used to call your financial advisor for a stock quote. You wanted to know how a security was trading at a given point in the day, and that information was only available via a telephone call to an advisor. What discount brokers did was make that available in the public domain, on the internet, and people thought, well, this is the end of the financial advisors. The financial advisors got smart pretty quickly, and they upped their game. They said, well, that's fine. You can get access to a stock quote, but what you don't have is access to asset allocation. You don't have your own CAPM model, and you still need advice, and you need a holistic asset allocation. And so financial advisors continued to grow their business. What then happened with these robo-advisors that Pat's referring to is they really democratized asset allocation. And I think we're at a moment of inflection when financial advisors really need to provide advice, true advice around financial planning for a household and think about trade-offs around which products you can purchase. How do you plan for retirement in terms of your home and should you buy or sell and move to a different location? Should you fund a child's education or should you fund a long-term care policy? And the advisors who can provide advice around trade-offs 
will continue to be very valuable. Yeah, I couldn't agree with, with Jill Moore. You go back 30, 40 years, the proposition of the stockbrokers that were called at the time was, I'm going to give you an idea and I'm going to execute the trade. And half of that proposition almost overnight went away. All of a sudden, people could execute their own trades. And fast forward a few decades, Jill's absolutely right. Building of a portfolio against objectives is now the sort of new, you know, not quite commodity, but we're, we're headed in that direction. It can be done cheaper, it can be done better, it can be done algorithmically. If we wonder how this is going to play out, I think it's interesting to look at other industries. If we take healthcare, for example, that may be several years, if not a decade ahead in terms of its disruption, we see the rise of pop-up urgent care facilities in a lot of major metropolitan areas, but we certainly see the continuation of specialty medical practices on the rise. And I think what we see from a client and a consumer perspective is a bifurcation of their needs. I go to an urgent care facility because it's open long hours on nights and holidays and weekends when I have a basic cold run-of-the-mill illness. When I have a more acute illness, there's no way I'm not going to go to a specialist. And I also go with a much more informed view. So most people use basic online search to research what they suspect may or may not be wrong with them. And so when we go to our doctor, we go for advice and we go to have a conversation. We don't go for access to information in the way we may have gone even 10 years ago. Let's talk a little bit about the size and shape of the market, the, the demographics. We've established that technology may change the nature of the work done by financial advisors and the skills they need, but there remains plenty of work to be done, right? So who are advisors going to be advising in future? Technology is clearly not the only factor in the overall economics of the industry. I think there are a number of forces at work. First and foremost, the nature and size of the number of clients and households seeking advice and the wealth of those households overall. There are some fundamental demographic transformations happening right now. The average age for both financial advisors and their clients seems to be increasing. When we look at households to start, for the first time in North American history, the oldest households are the wealthiest households. It was always true that older households were wealthier, but the oldest, the 75-year-old heads of households, were not always the oldest households. And so we start to think about intergenerational wealth transfer in a material way. We think about how those assets are going to flow down to families. I know people talk a lot about millennials, but the reality is millennials, while they're 22% of the households in the U.S., they have about 2% of the assets. And given the lifespan that we know is increasing for folks, it seems to reason that the intergenerational wealth transfer is actually going to transfer from the current generation of 75-year-old households and older, actually to their baby boom children, many of whom who have at least one living parent. And so the baby boomers are the next important generation to think about. They represent about 50% of households in North America today and certainly stand to be the ones with the most wealth in the, in the coming decade. And so there is a very different landscape on the client side 
than we've had in the past. I think the other important thing, which I, of course, will mention, we know that women have started to control and have controlled household decision-making for most consumer products for some time now. But in financial services, they tended to not. And what we saw is when a spouse died and the remaining widow was a woman, 60% of the time, the woman would move their asset to another financial firm, which means that financial advisor was actually not serving a couple or a household, but they were serving a single individual. And so just pure life expectancy for women tends to be several years longer. We know that younger women are controlling spend in the household, including financial decisions. And we start to look at women as an important segment of the population, which historically just hadn't been served well by financial advisors. I think one of the interesting things that we've observed with respect to demographics is there's very much two different types of financial advisor. There are financial advisors who have built their sort of practice around working with a very concentrated demographic. And you can sort of picture how that would happen if I'm growing my book of business, interacting with clients, growing through referrals, I'm going to attract other clients that, that look like the ones that I have, similar age, sometimes even similar profession. And I can be quite successful at doing that. And, and as that demographic ages and accumulates more wealth, to me, it looks like I'm doing a great job. My book's growing. But then you hit a certain point and, and often that very concentrated demographic will turn around and they'll start to spend the wealth that they have, right? In many cases, they'll start to pass it on to other generations. And all of a sudden, as a financial advisor, I'm not growing anymore. In fact, my business is quite a bit in jeopardy because I wasn't thinking about that next generation. By contrast, we see certain financial advisors who are fantastic at constantly connecting with investors sort of at the beginning of their investment journey. For us, that's not millennials quite yet. You know, it's right now it would be sort of Gen X who are, believe it or not, entering their 50s now. And that's sort of a magic age from a wealth management standpoint, because you really, your wealth is really starting to accelerate. Uh, you're really thinking about savings. College is on the mind typically for kids. Uh, so there's, there are a lot of big financial decisions, but starting to think about bringing Gen X into your practice and then thinking about technology from that standpoint, these are folks in their sort of 40s and 50s now who are extremely busy, who are used to technology a little bit more than the baby boomers, who are comfortable texting, for example, with their financial advisors. Something else I've seen in the research, Pat, is that uh, financial advice is becoming more of a team sport uh, and that the most successful advisors are working within networks of specialisms so they can pull in more specialist expertise as needed. Uh, is that right? Firms encourage advisors to work in teams for a number of reasons. One is they're more likely to stay with that firm if they're part of a large team or ensemble. But that's evolved uh, as sort of financial advisors have learned themselves, wow, it's great to work as part of a team. You know, I can actually take a vacation and not be checking my phone all the time, worried about the markets or my clients. Similarly, investors themselves, it's fascinating. They've got higher levels of engagement, they have longer relationships, deeper relationships, those investors who work with advisors who are part of a team. Jill mentioned the emergence of importance of women investors. Um, one of the things our research has shown specifically around teams is women investors are more likely to work with a team, in particular, 
a team that has women advisors on it. So it's sort of odd, but one of the most successful archetypes for a team is a husband and wife who work as sort of joint financial advisors, very successful at attracting other couples, but also uh, individual uh, female investors. So we've talked about technology and we've talked about the demographics. I guess the, the third big factor here is regulation. So what's going on right now in terms of how financial advice is being regulated? It's fair to say that in most developed countries, regulation exists and, and is likely here to stay. If I talk about the U.S. in particular, the fiduciary rule, which essentially is holding financial advisors to a higher standard of care. Previously, there was financial advice given to clients, and it was always presumed to be in the client's best interest, but the current fiduciary rule is requiring us to vouch very specifically that the advice is in the client's best interest and is creating a suitability standard for advice. It may sound like a minor change, but it actually has pretty significant implications. The rule remains in flux. And we've seen a couple of examples ahead of the U.S. example, um, something called RDR in, in Great Britain, uh, which actually went to the extent of sort of banning commissions from products and sort of accelerating a, a move to a different fee-based model there. In Canada, where I'm based, we've just completed uh, something called CRM2, which puts on every investor's statement two things. One, their historical investment performance, uh, and two, in dollars, what they paid their financial advisor. So there's definitely a trend toward transparency, uh, helping the end investor know exactly what they're paying and exactly what they're paying for. Where it'll be very interesting, I think, when you look forward is that as much as regulations are changing, we talked about it quite a bit today, the market itself is changing. How do you effectively regulate a robo-advisor? Is it the same rules? Is there a, a different set of rules? Okay, so that gives us a great overview of the North American market. Uh, before we jet over to China, thank you, Jill Zucker and Pat Kennedy. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Now let's turn our attention to the wealth management sector in China, which, as you'd expect, presents a very different picture. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Joe Nye, who is a partner in McKinsey's Hong Kong office. Joe is actually the managing partner of McKinsey's offices in Greater China overall. So, Joe, thanks very much for taking the time to speak. Of course. Talking about the North American market with Jill and Pat, a picture emerged of a, a mature, profitable sector, but one facing some challenges in terms of uh, demographics, regulation, technology. How much of that resonates from a China perspective? Maybe, maybe start with the demographics. Unlike many parts in the world, I think China's wealth is more in the hands of the 30s to 40s. So in many ways, it's a much younger demographic in terms of a wealth management market. It is also a market that you know, the Chinese are a big country of savers. In the past few years, you have seen a country of savers into a country of investors. So as savings, and these are mostly bank deposits, gets into more investment-related products, you see the wealth management market really blossoming under such a change. And that's really where both from a demographic, which is a younger generation, 
but also from a behavior point of view, which is kind of savers to investors, you see these two kind of big trends happening in China. So this sounds like very good news for wealth managers overall. I mean, uh, in North America, you're starting from a very profitable but quite mature industry in terms of its growth trajectory. In China, this is a market which is growing pretty fast, right? This is certainly a market that uh, for a lot of traditional banks, you're seeing growth rates between 10 to 20% in the past couple of years. And in individual segments, you're seeing rates in the 20s for a lot of these. So remember, again, a lot of these are um, sitting in kind of bank deposit accounts for a very long time, right? So they're essentially switching to the nature of these assets. But that has actually brought about um, a bit of a revolution in the wealth management market. And also, I would say, in the demand for both products as well as advice. What's the, uh, the role of technology from a China perspective? Because we, we know that Chinese e-commerce and the Chinese technology uh, economy are quite remarkable for their dynamism. So how's that playing out in the, the wealth management sector? Yeah, it's definitely playing out in a very big way. So in the past few years, I would say that there's been some pretty rapid changes in the way how Chinese consumers think about their financial services, right? In particular, I think that people do have a lot of trust in called internet services or remote services. And this really started off maybe a few years ago when the players like, you know, Alibaba with, you know, the Alipay which is the kind of PayPal equivalent in China, started to offer small depositors a interest through a money market fund. And that has now blossomed into the largest money market fund in the world because of the between 10 bucks to 100 bucks, right, that you can actually put into kind of these money market funds. In China, through digital and through, you know, without any kind of personal intermediary in between, um, you can actually do these things in a very low cost and in a very direct way. In China, a phrase we use a lot, which is that you know, the internet services has allowed financial services to get to the long tail of retail customers that was never previously underserved or not served by the financial institutions. The second thing that has really made a big difference. It's also around information. So if you think about how people now are accessing information in China, whether it's understanding around products or yields or maybe a different ways to invest, I would say that primarily right there, uh, you know, the, the information sources is really from the internet through their uh, WeChats and, and through a lot of the different internet either banks or other financial institutions or even information sites. So the dissemination of information, right, is I would say at this stage in China, primarily through a digital interface, mostly through handheld devices and mobile devices. This sounds uh, to a layperson as an example of what's sometimes referred to as leapfrogging, uh, where an industry is almost born for the first time in quite a sophisticated technology-enabled, internet-enabled way. Is, is that a way to look at it? China went from cash into a digital payments, kind of, you know, skipping by, in some ways, a kind of credit card and personal checks industry. <laughs> I would say that in the wealth management place, it has gone from kind of savings account into now digital wealth management. Now, 
I'm not suggesting that the personal advice and the financial advisors, they don't have a future in China. There are people who actually would always want to have someone to hold their hands and to explain things and all that. And this is particularly around more complex investment products. These are around some of the risks that will be much more difficult to explain through a entirely self-service interface. Now, the uh, obvious question is how far up the wealth categories the technology-enabled platforms go. Presumably, if you're an ultra-high-net-worth individual, you've got a traditional-looking financial advisor. In fact, you've probably got a whole team of financial advisors uh, at a private bank somewhere. But at least as you see it in China, how far up the food chain do you think remote, robo-technology-type services will go? Traditionally, we think about these as wealth segments, right? So basically, people who are you know, higher up in wealth, right, they would actually want kind of personal advice. If they are lower down, you know, in their stage in wealth, then you would be more self-service. I actually think that it's probably more around either attitudes, behavior, as well as the type of products than just a wealth category. Let me give you some examples. I do think that there are some people, even they are in the much higher net worth space, that are much more comfortable using a digital interface than people with low wealth segment. I don't think that wealth is a particularly good way to segment customers around their either familiarity right, or their trust in the digital interface. In some of the players that we've seen in China, we have seen enormous wealth management products being transacted online with no one, no human interface in between. And we're talking about millions of US dollars being put into different products just by a click of a button, okay? And previously, we thought that that would never happen, right? But these days, you know, the the trust and the faith in some of these things, actually, with some very sophisticated and very high net worth investors, they are still willing to do that because they've done it many times before. They trust the institutions and they do, uh, and they are quite sophisticated in the usage. So I would say the differentiation is going to be more complicated, right? It's going to be by behavior. It's going to be by type of uh, familiarity with technology. And it's also going to be around the type of products, right? I do think that for some very simple products, for very simple transactions, for example, something that actually is, you know, much more safer products, uh, much more lower risk categories and things that you would, you know, normally do with a lot less advice, That's a lovely segue into the third force that we talked about at the start. There's demographics, there's technology, and then there's regulation. So how are the regulators reacting to this explosion of innovation in the wealth management sector in China? Regulation in China is always a bit of a a moving target because of how rapid things are, are developing, right? But I think that there are a couple of things in China that are kind of worth looking out for. The first one is really around the renminbi, right, the currency in China. Right now, there's a lot of capital controls in China, so meaning that a lot of individuals would not have the opportunity to invest in global products and products that are not denominated in renminbi. I think that this makes it so that there is a very close off local Chinese wealth management market that has always been invested locally. But I think that as regulations start to open up more, for example, there are now these direct connections with the Hong Kong capital markets. Um, They're increasingly what we call these QDII products, which basically are foreign products that are basically allowed in a quota-based way to be distributed in China. Um, I think that the Chinese wealth management market is 
I would say, you know, slowly and steadily growing outside of China. And as these investors start to understand the different investment opportunities that are available to them globally, I think that that is going to be something where, you know, regulation opening up, the Chinese investors getting more sophisticated, as well as, I would say, the financial institutions that are becoming more comfortable to do that. The second point, I would say, is around the more riskier or equity-related products in China. So the Chinese wealth management market in the last couple of years are mostly around fixed income or fixed return products. So these are products with 3%, 5%, 6%, very much a fixed income product. I think the Chinese regulator is trying to make sure that a lot of these products that previously were under some implicit guarantee by financial institutions will no longer be a guarantee. So as Chinese investors start to understand that there are actually risks involved in some of these products as they move towards a regime where there will be actual fluctuations in the underlying assets, I think that's going to be something where the Chinese wealth management market will need to come off Asia a little bit. The third one, you know, which is something where I think we all around the world are trying to get to terms with is around the digital distribution. Because as we all know, while digital can be a huge enabler and make things a lot more efficient, but at the same time, we need to be very you know, conscious around you know, how do we ensure that through the digital interface that we are really getting the right products to the right customers. And throughout that, there's no abuse around it. There's no miscommunication. And how do we ensure that you know, we use technology to enable these things to be even more effective and not as a way to, I would say, get into a sort of situation that we got ourselves into in the last financial crisis? So we know that the big names of wealth management in North America and Europe uh, the Swiss, for example, uh, have ambitions in China. Do you think, Joe, that we'll see some of the domestic Chinese wealth management players expanding globally? The Chinese players uh, feel like they have a very large market on their own hands. And they do one thing they know well is the Chinese consumer and their needs. I think they'll go overseas with their customers. I think that's will be the natural way for them to expand. So I would say that they'll be looking overseas for product partners. They were looking overseas for different platforms where they can access international products. I think they'll be open to services or other advisory partnerships, right, where foreign players or people in different countries and platforms would have the ability and the capabilities of to serve these Chinese consumers. Super. Well, let, let's leave it there. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Great. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. To find out more about the changing face of wealth management and indeed other financial services, please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, Visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.